0: Welcome back to church this morning. Uh, we are finishing off our series on, called Home Run Life, where we're looking at the pattern of life through Scripture. And uh, one of the things I want to do before we jump into that is, after church, there's going to be some of these flyers that are passed out. And uh, it's about a boot camp. And it's all to raise money. It's a, it's a different... Uh, it's not necessarily our church putting this on. We've got some friends putting this on for Marlia Cochran. Our church is hosting some space for them to be able to do this. But if you need to get in shape uh, before the holidays or work off that turkey, um, there is boot camps that are going to be starting up, and uh, there are going to be workout experiences, but it's going, all funds are going to buy a new kidney, and um, that's for Marlia. So if you would like to do that, then we'd love for you to, uh, to uh, get a flyer after church, And uh, and be a part of that. I, of course, do not need a boot camp. (laughs) Many years of um, typing and reading have paid off. Of course, we're in this series called Home Run. I know, I make that joke all the time. Mainly because it's so false. But um, we're in this series called Home Run Life. And one of the things we look at in this series is what is the pattern of life that leads and yields to the most success? To what God is calling us to do. Success looks different in the world than it does in a life with, with Jesus. And so we started this series with this premise, and I, this actually is not on the screen because I added it this morning, of Romans 12, 1 and two, where it says, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. The verse seems to tell us that there's this pattern that the world tends to operate in. There's a pattern that that people tend to do. And this pattern, I want to show you up on the screen. We've got this graphic that we've been using throughout the whole series um, this pattern a lot of times that the, the world likes to go after and tells us we need to go after is first run to results, get the best paying job, get, get the best, biggest thing you can, do th- the best you can in life. And then one day your relationships will come. I mean, people are actually getting married way later these days because they say, oh, we got to get our job, we got to do all this all these things first. And then, um, you know, they go after character. After that, well, one of the things that we found in Scripture is that the most successful biblical people run run the bases in a certain pattern. They go up to the plate, and we're using this baseball metaphor because when we started, it was the World Series. Um, it's not the World Series anymore. And um, by the way, some of us were disappointed that the Giants won again. Sorry for you San Francisco fans, but they're like the Yankees of the West Coast. It's getting getting disappointing. Anyways. You first start with dependence on God. Some of you are like getting up and walking out of the church. It first starts with dependence on God. When we connect there first, then we can move to a godly character. And then from there, we can move to godly community, connecting well with others. And then we can move to competency and getting results in life. And we have to ask ourselves, what does results look like? And that's what we're looking at today. We're looking at this idea of running to third base. And there might be some confusion about what does results mean? Does that mean like the big salary? Does that mean the big house? Does that mean a great car? No, not necessarily. Biblical results are different than the results of this world, just like Romans 12 tells us the world lives by a different pattern than we do, and so there's different results even. So before we get into it, I want to just say today, in this message, we're going to talk about our church in particular, and then our our lives as individuals in particular. And as we talk about our church in particular, it will pertain to your life. And as we talk about our church's lives, I mean, we're kind of go back and forth interchangeably. But also, I want to talk about the biblical metaphor for the results in our lives is harvest. Plow, plant, harvest. You see this all through the scriptures. They use farming metaphors. Why? Because there are farming people. There are people that lived in an era where if you were going to live, then you farmed, Right? Nowadays, if you're going to live and eat, you run to the grocery store. We're, we're in an interesting period of our history of humanity. Do you know that only within the last, like, 80 years have people had free time? It's interesting, because before that, you were chopping firewood if you wanted to stay warm. You were chopping firewood if you wanted to eat. You were chopping firewood if you wanted to do anything. But now we're started to have this free time because we're not farming people anymore. But all through the Bible, it talks about plowing planting and harvesting so getting ready the, getting the fields ready planting the seeds and then harvesting a lot of times we get addicted to the harvesting right we like to ta- we like to harvest and harvest and harvest we want more and more people to come to church more and more people to come to church but there's a time for plowing there's a time for planting and there's a time for harvesting but right alongside with that harvesting metaphor throughout scripture there's another metaphor that, that just goes interchangeably and it, and it works perfectly. And what it talks about is fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. We've heard this before. I'm going to flip over to um, John 15, just John 15 verse 5. Jesus says this, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, then you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you could do nothing. So Christian results look like fruit, but that's not really well defined. Like what, an orange or or like a pear? Like what is, what does that mean? For us, it means to be the kind of person, to have the kind of character that we want what God wants. That our will is aligned with God's will. And so that when God wants something, we go, oh, that's the desire of my heart. That's what fruit looks like in our lives. But in order to get there, we need to start with dependence. We need to win character battles. We need to have our relationships formed. And that yields to even greater fruit. The next verse I wanted to talk about is um, Galatians 5, through 23. And it simply says this, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, And self control. Against such things, there is no law. Now, right before this, it says the acts of the flesh are obvious. And then it does this whole list of impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, all this stuff. And if you kind of just want to see where you are in life, I'd recommend opening up to Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 19, and just reading and saying, okay, where am I at in this? take this little list and go, okay, am I over here or am I over here? These little black and white sections of the Bible are nice and easy for us, right? They're nice to have around because then we can say, where are we? But essentially, for us, it's the fruit of the Spirit. This kind of person, the person that is um, joyful, the kind of person that that loves, the kind of person that has forbearance, kindness, patience, gentleness, goodness, and self-control, that kind of person wins in the end. That kind of person gets the most quality results. And the results we're, we're talking about, again, are your character or who you are as a person. But also, see, sometimes God puts dreams in the hearts of his people. Has God ever put a dream on your heart? a vision on your heart, something that you just had to do. Maybe it was a ministry to start. Maybe it was a person to help. Maybe it was, it was something you're going to do with your family. Maybe it was stepping out into faithfulness. Has God ever put a dream on your heart? Results are also these dreams that God puts on your heart. How do we get to those dreams? And so today, one of the things I want to do is talk about literally, how do we get to these results? In our lives, How do we get to the dream results and how do we get to the fruit results? Now, we're not going to spend a ton of time on the fruit results today because we're starting a new series in two weeks that um, is going to really hit on that. And so if you're interested in that, make sure you come back because we're going to do a lot more on that. And what I could say is the way to get to the fruit results is discipleship to Jesus, number one. And what does that look like? I've said this before and I'll I'll say it again. Many of us have accepted Jesus as our Savior, right? If we were to go around the room and say, how many of you have accepted Jesus as as your Savior? Raise your hand. A lot of people would probably raise their hands. But the question is, have you accepted Jesus as your teacher? As the best one to do life with? As the one that you read and study his words? Do you follow the words of the rabbi? Are you a student of Jesus? See, so many times in our culture, we get told how to live by pundits, by people who were supposedly experts, but really they were just on a movie. And it doesn't necessarily make them an expert in life. They were just some actor, right? Not that they're not smart, not that they're not qualified to speak on certain things, but the experts in life have have drastically changed in our world. And now we listen to opinion as if it's fact. And that's the way it's portrayed. So who do you learn from? Who do you study from? Who is it? Do you study people that study about Jesus? I mean, I'd study those people all the time. But do you, or do you study Jesus? Do you read his word? Do you read the New Testament? Do you read the whole Bible? Do you, do you get immersed into his word? God's word is his revelation to humanity. It's what he wants us to hear and to know and to live by. Are you immersed in it? So discipleship to Jesus, and we're going to talk a lot about that in the coming weeks. And so, again, I didn't want to um, get too crazy on that topic today. But two, we need to trade our slings for a sword. And we're going to get into this right now. If, throughout this series, ah. Oh, the adhesive of the fine 2 Samuel on my own. It's okay, I could do it. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean First Samuel. Uh, flip with me to 1 Samuel 16. Throughout this series, um, we have been uh, going through some Old Testament characters. We have been looking through the life of some of the patriarchs, and one of the lives I want to look at today is, is just a segment of the life of David. So flip with me to 1 Samuel 16, and I've got to explain what was happening during the time so that once we get to 1 Samuel 16, we understand it. So David lived about 500 years after Moses. There was a prophet in the land named Samuel, and Samuel heard from God and told the king what ought to happen. He was sort of like the... um, the covenant relationship guy. He managed the relationship with God for the whole country. That's what Samuel did. And then you got this king who was named Saul at the time and he was sort of the authority of God. And so he had armies and, and, and he carried out the authority. That's what Saul did. But Saul was not a good king. In fact, Saul was scared and Saul was arrogant and, and Saul ended up sinning in a big way by taking over some of Samuel's job. And, and so Saul was going to be replaced as king. And God told Samuel, I want you to go to the house of Jesse, and you're going to anoint a king. And this is where we are today. 1 Samuel 16, verses 6 through uh, 13. When they arrived, Samuel saw Elab and thought, Surely the, Lord anoints, the Lord's anointed stands before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. Short people rejoice. Right? Sorry, John. You're the, like literally the tallest guy here. The Lord has rejected you. That's not true. This is, sorry, right, anyways. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. And that's such an important verse, by the way. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. Our sense of judgment is skewed, but God is the perfect judge. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Adem- Adimab. And had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse had Shammah pass by Samuel. And Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to them, the Lord has not chosen these. For he, and So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is uh, tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. From that day, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went off to Ramah. God puts dreams in the hearts of his people. This little boy David, probably 10 to 13 years old, comes in from tending the sheep and is anointed. Now, this is no small move. I mean, literally a horn full of oil poured over this guy's head. Go, go in your drawer today or go in home in the kitchen and take your olive oil and just pour it on your head. This makes a mess. I mean, they don't really do that, okay, just for clarity. Um, this makes a mess. This is, this is a big deal. I mean, the reason why it makes a mess is to show that God's covering is over this person. This is a huge deal in his life. And, and so, you know, he's basically saying, you are the most significant person here. And what's interesting is that the, the scripture uses the word when it says, there is still the youngest. When Jesse said, there is still the youngest, in Hebrew the word is katan. And katan means not just youngest like we would use it in English, but it means youngest and least significant youngest and least significant that's what that word means and so there was sort of this feeling when you had a lot of children that your youngest was just sort of like oh it's the last one no big deal we had eight because we knew one of them might die you know it's not a big deal. That's, literally, that's how they felt about life a lot of times. It was the least significant, the runt of the litter. But God chose him, not because of his appearance, but because of his heart. God puts dreams in the hearts of his people. Imagine a 10-year-old being anointed in front of all your big brothers, in front of Jesse, in front of the prophet of Israel. This was a big deal. This was huge. And so David now has this dream in his heart. He, there's already a king, and he can't be king yet. He's just anointed to be king. So he can't be king just yet. So, but it's really in the story of David and Goliath that we see a young man have an idea to step out and get results in his life. Flip with me to 1 Samuel 17. It's just the next page, and we're going to look at a couple of um, David's qualifications a couple of his little stories here so David now is standing in front of the king of Israel, Saul and he's giving kind of his qualifications to go fight this giant and he says this First Samuel 17 verses um, 38 through 40 says this then Saul dressed uh, David in his did I get that right? No, nope, I got to read First Samuel 17, 34 through 35. That's what I, I meant to say. So 34 through 35, but David said to Saul, now remember, Saul just said, you are not qualified to fight. And David said this, your servant has been working in his father, with his father's sheep. When a lion or bear came and carried off the sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it what were you doing at 10 years old, right? Probably playing video games or something. Atari. David was killing lions and bears, okay? We have some catch-up to do. So David now is is giving his qualifications. He said, listen, I've killed these animals, these strong animals with my bare hands. And so Saul relents, and Saul says, okay, I'll, I'll let you go about this. But then it he, this is what happens in verse 38. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand. He chose five smooth stones from his stream and put them in a pouch of a shepherd's bag. And with a sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. Now, this is a Philistine giant who's been taunting Israel for days, basically saying, send out your best guy. We'll see whose God is greater because this wasn't just a battle between two guys. The way they understood it was a battle between two religious systems, the God of of the Hebrews versus the God of the Philistines, who was going to be more dominant. And it would be played out on this field on earth. And so David said, I'll take this guy on. And he's a young guy. He's a little boy that goes to fight the Philistine. He goes to fight this battle. What I think is wise is what he knew when not to make change. Sometimes in our lives, sometimes in the church, we want to make change. We want to go, go, go. But sometimes there's times not to make that in our lives. And I think for David, what I've learned through him is if it feels completely awkward and wrong, don't do it right? Sometimes people want to force you to make changes in your family that just feel completely awkward and wrong. The sword's too big, the breastplate doesn't fit, the helmet covers your face. I can't fight a giant in this. I can't do my best work here. If it feels completely awkward and wrong, don't do it. And that's what David did. He said, I can't fight in this. I'm going to step up, I'm going to step back a notch and I'm just going to simply take my sling and my staff so just as important as making change to get the results that god is calling you to do to, to achieve the dreams that god has placed in your heart as important as that is to make change because it is important it's also important to know when not to make change when to continue to go down the same road you've been going down because that is the right road Sometimes it's your family. Sometimes it's a career decision. Sometimes it's a life decision. And the best way to go about that is to pray about it and talk with other men and women whose hearts are surrendered to God because they will be the word of the Lord in your life. So know when to make change and know when not to make change. Let's keep going, though. 1 Samuel 17, 50 through 51 David had gone out to the Philistine, Goliath. And he ran quickly towards him. He attacked him. He grabbed a stone. I mean, he knew. This guy knew what to do. He grabbed five smooth stones from the river. And 50 and 51, after he had killed him, it said, So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him, he took hold of the Philistine's sword, drew it from its sheath. After he had killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. Now, this was very common back in these days. And I also want to, on Facebook a couple weeks ago, I have a friend who's an atheist and said, oh, if we think ISIS is violent, you should read the Old Testament. My response to that person was, you've never read any other ancient literature, apparently, because the Old Testament actually is very, very, very mild compared to other ancient literature um so when you read this it sort of seems pretty violent but you have to understand this is the bronze age and the norm and we can't take our 21st century uh, judgments and place it on the scriptures we have to look at it from 21st or from bronze age lenses does that make sense okay so david laid down his sling and picked up a sword There's no other mention. I mean, David fought gallantly in many battles. In fact, David is the one who's credited with bringing the southern kingdom of Judah together with the northern kingdom of Israel and creating the most glorious empire in Israel's history. David is the one who made the plans for the temple of the Lord. David is the one who united and fended off the enemies. David is the one who restored the worship of the Lord. David is the one who brought the ark back. David was the man. David got results that nobody could have ever dreamed of getting. But first he had to exchange his boyhood sling for a sword. He had to make a change. He had to shift a little bit. See, we need to win battles in our life if we're going to get results. Sometimes they're character battles, maybe battles of anger. We've got to win those battles and pick up another tool in order to get results in our lives. Maybe it's a lust battle. You've got to win that battle before you get results in your life. Maybe it's a self-control battle. See, victory needs to be won, but that means that you need to fight for it. So many times in our life, we have this laissez-faire attitude towards our spiritual lives, That, oh, we'll just be better people one day. Or, oh, we're just going to be nicer one day. But that's not true. If you're not working for it, then you probably won't get it. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Does that make sense? Grace is not opposed to effort. The scriptures say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It is okay to work for the results that you want in your spiritual life. Grace as opposed to earning. We cannot earn salvation. But we can make an effort in our salvation. See, victory needs to be won, and we need to fight for it. Before Jesus could ever be effective in his ministry, he had to overcome the devil's temptation in the desert. He had to fight for it. Before he could powerfully cure diseases, before he could cast out demons, he had to beat the devil on his own playing field first. It's okay to fight for the good things in our lives. We cannot take this laissez faire attitude of, oh, well, whatever happens, happens. Carpe diem, great idea, but it's not reality. See, before David could lead effectively in the military campaigns that he won, he had to defeat Israel's greatest enemy. But how did he do it? He changed. He had to change, he had to pick up that sword. Sure, he beat Goliath that one time with a sling, but imagine all of Israel's armies with slings. It just wouldn't have worked. Going against people with swords. They had to pick up a new weapon. He had to pick up a new idea. So I want to talk about change for a second because I think it's really important. I think it's, this is generally true. I think I think. So this might not be generally true, but I think it's true. People are not opposed to change. They're opposed to getting hurt. I think that's the truth. And I think that the more and more I talk to people, that that is the truth. See, our church is going through some changes. I think some of them are pretty good. See, we need to change to be able to reach. Now, we don't change our core convictions or our biblical truth. but Sometimes we need to change style in the way that we reach culture. Ways that we operate, ways that we... Um, Ways that we raise people up because our world has drastically changed. A hundred years ago, like when I mentioned um, that there was no free time, also the most common book there was available for people to read was the Bible, right? That and Dante's Inferno. I mean, there was just like a couple of books that were really widely available for people to read. And, and mainly, it was the Bible. If you wanted entertainment, you'd go listen to your preacher, Right? The sermon would be written up in the next day's newspaper, and people would be able to reread the sermon, right? I have not had anybody from the Tribune call me. I don't know what their problem is, but I'm giving them gold. And I'm kidding. Um, Our culture has drastically changed. No longer do people have Bible quiz competitions. Some people do. But where biblical knowledge used to be the complete norm, now the complete norm is biblical illiteracy. We cannot continue to go after the same crowd of folks with the same old sling. We've got to pick up a sword. Does that make sense? If we want to see results, if we want to see the dreams that God has has given within us, We've got to change. And maybe this is true in your family. Maybe this is true at your workplace. Maybe it's a mindset. Maybe it's knowledge you need to gain. Maybe it's something you should just, um, something sinful that you need to drop. But in order to accomplish God-sized dreams, we've got to be careful not to use the tools of humanity. Sometimes we master um, a skill set and we get to a different level of success. But what happens when God is inviting you to something even new? newer. You have to pick up your sword. This is, uh, like I said, a lesson that we're learning as a church right now. We're in the middle of picking up our sword. As a leader, God has called me and our board to look at the long-term health and viability of our church, and so we look at a number of different things. And you should do this too with your family, by the way. We look at financial viability of our church, which we're doing okay, which is, praise God, that's amazing. We're doing, we're doing fine. We look at that, and we look at spiritual, sort of this spiritual, where are we going? Uh, how are we raising people up? Are people being transformed? Are people being saved? And we've sort of wrestled with some ideas over the, the, the past few months, and, and which have resulted in, in two weeks, we're going to lay out a brand new vision for our church. We're going to lay out a, a, a strategic direction that we're going. And I'm really excited for this. This is good change. We're picking up our sword because we realize our culture has completely shifted. It has completely changed, and therefore, we need new tools to work with a new culture. We want to see more people coming to know Jesus, but it doesn't just happen the way it used to. Many of you remember when Dr. Phil was here a couple weeks ago. Um, he, he said, you know, Billy Graham used to be able to say, the Bible says, and it had so much authority that people would just run and flood the altars and except Jesus right there on the spot. We are no longer living in those days. Those days were gone 10 years ago. And so we need to change. I think it starts with prayer. It absolutely starts with prayer. It starts with each one of us saying, God, what can I do? Lord, how can you use me in this church? How can you use me in this world? What can we see come out of what you're doing what are the dreams that you have for this world what are they we're going to go over what i think some of those dreams are because that was a big focus of our time and the board is what does god want through the scriptures so i think each of us needs to begin praying for somebody new to come i think this is really important i think one of us i think god wants to lay in our hearts one person that we can invest into not 500 people, I'm not challenging you to go reach your entire family, or go reach your entire work. I'm challenging you to reach one. I think God really wants us to, to reach one and to begin to engage them with the love of Jesus in a powerful way. And eventually that might result in, hey, would you like to come to church with me? Eventually that might result in that. I know it's scary, but if we're going to move forward, we've got to lay down our old tools like I said, in two weeks, um, we're going to lay out a brand new vision. And I would love for all of you to make it a point to write it in your calendars to be here. Because I'm, I'm excited about this, and I think it's going to really drastically um, give us a great course for the next uh, couple of years. I'm really looking forward to that. We need, our worship has been fantastic. And one of the things I've noticed about our worship And this is my task to to John, is that I want our congregation singing louder than the band. Because that is worship like the throne room of heaven. In the throne room of heaven, there's no band. That has to lead it. Could you imagine if we all just walked in here and started singing? How great would that be if John's John's job was able to be dissolved? Right, John? I'm kidding. Um, John's like, wait a second. Um, But if we all... I mean, it just sort of seems weird. What if we all just came here and started singing? That's what the throne room of heaven is like, and that's what we want to see. We want to see people singing louder than the band. We need revamped teams. Um, Bless their heart, Orpha has been our only greeter for a long time. We need people to step up and say, hey, I want to be a greeter. I want to come in and I want to welcome people. We need people who want to step into saying, hey, you know what? I think I could teach the Bible. And in fact, you know what? I think I could wear this silly little thing and come up there and preach. You know, that might sound crazy to you, but remember, I started here as the skate park guy. This church has a habit of raising people up. And that's what we need to do. With, if in order to get results in our church and in your life, you have got to step out of your, of your comfort zone. Desiree, my wife, was born here as a children's director. Aniko came to start help with a couple of people, um, uh, community service kids, who just part time, maybe a couple hours a week, and now she's our office manager. Gabby started coming a a couple years ago, and then all of a sudden we said, "Hey, we'd like you to apply, uh, or like you to have this youth pastor position." Now she's our youth pastor. I started here as a skate park guy. I think God wants to raise people up, and and so that's a change, and we want to see some of you, like maybe God has. place this thing on your heart where you're like, man, I just need to step out and do something. Come and talk to one of us. There's plenty to do. We need people to follow up with new visitors, make phone calls. We need people praying before this church, praying for me, praying for our teams. We need people praying. I mean, it might seem like little things, but one of the things that we need to do if our church is going to survive for another hundred years, is to build an ethic that our church simply hears from God and does what he says. That we have great communication with the Lord. Some people think that that communication is all stopped, but we don't believe that at all. We think that God simply wants to speak. You know, people sometimes treat church as a place to come to learn how to die, but what we want to do is train you how to live. And that's what we want to do. So in order to do all this, changes need to be made. We need to drop our sling and pick up a sword in order to get the results that God is calling us to. We need to drop some of the old stuff, even with your own personal lives. If this church is going to be the kind of church that impacts this community for hundreds of years to come, then that's directly affected by the rate at which some of us are willing to stand up and say, here I am, Lord, send me. Here I am, send me. I got this to meet with um, one, a worldwide expert in Islam this week. He's a Christian man. But he was trained at the same places where the under, uh, underwear bomber and the shoe bomber and one of Osama bin Laden's mentors was trained in, in Yemen. Yemen. And I got to talk with him and ask him questions about Islam because I'm very interested in all that they think and believe. And we were, we were talking, and one of the stories he told me was that in Jakarta, where he, his church is, um, there was uh, some time of persecution, and they even went after some Muslims. And the church came around, and they, they fed Muslims, and they clothed them, and they did all kinds of amazing things to reach out to these people, even though they weren't Christians, And then what happened was when persecution squads came to take the pastors of these churches and to kill them, the Muslims were the ones that stood up in the street and blocked them off. What kind of change would that look like for us to reach a community that didn't think anything like us, that didn't believe anything like us, that didn't even come here? What would it look like to love them? And then it might look like a little bit more or in Acts chapter 2, where it says that the entire community spoke well of the church, that they wanted the church there. So one, we need to drop the sling and pick up a sword. I just think that's crucial. Two, if we're going to see results in your personal life and even in the church, and again, remember, I'm talking personal life and the church, for what God has called you to, for the, to get the fruit off the tree. If we want to see results, We've got to bring our talents to the table. God has created each one of you with special talents. God has given you a gift that no one else can do, but God has given it to you. And I wanted to read you this quote by the famous mystic Teresa of Alva. She said, "'Christ has no body on this earth now but yours, no hands but yours, no feet but yours.'" Yours are the eyes through which his compassion will look on the world. Yours are the feet in which he will go about doing things, good things. Yours are the hands which he will use to bless others. You are here for a reason. There is no mistake about it. You are the body of Christ on earth today, and Jesus ought to be revealed in each one of you. So if we're going to be the kind of church that gets the results that, that, that rises to the occasion and says, okay, God, this is the dream that you have for us, then we've got to bring our talents to the table. And what does that look like? What is your talent? I mean, even think about for your family. If you have dreams for your family, you've got to bring those talents to the table. You do at work, right? You bring your talent to the table all day at work. Why not with your family? Why not at church? We need to bring our talent to the table Now, serving is not about what you could do for God. God does not need your ability to hug somebody else. You might be really good at it. God does not need your, God doesn't need my ability to speak. He said the rocks will cry out. God is God. He doesn't need me, but it's what he wants to do through you. Serving is not about what you're going to do for God, although it's great what you're doing but it's about what God wants to do to you. God wants to change you and mold you. And the best way of doing that is serving. In fact, if I was to preach another message on this home run idea of going around the bases, I would say the the base from third base to scoring, that is serving. That is serving the Lord in in a way. Giving yourself to God and saying, okay, God, what do you need from me? How can I help? What team can I serve on? Is it the children's department? Is it the youth ministry? What can I do to serve? In serving the local church, God will grow you up. What I love about this church is its willingness to grow people up, like I said before. Like Desiree was the children's, uh, Desiree was born here, now she's the children's director. Gabby, now the youth pastor. I'm the stinking skate park guy. I mean, I can't believe it, but God likes to grow people up. And I love to think that maybe the next pastor of this church is sitting here right now. How amazing would that be, that God grows people up in that way? Not that I'm not going anywhere, unless some of you, like, kick me out. I mean, but I love to think that, because that's what God does. Maybe the next pastor of this church isn't off studying at some seminary, but is sitting here right now. God wants to raise people up for big things. God has developed dreams within you because they're his dreams and he wants to see them fulfilled. And if you don't do it, he'll use somebody else to do it. God has developed these dreams within you. He's developed dreams within churches. So we have to bring our talent to the table. Getting results in life is, is um, about doing what God wants us to do. By the way, this is why we need spiritual formation. This is why we need discipleship because we need to hear from God and do what he says. This is the best way to understand those dreams. And then as we move forward, <coughs> excuse me, we can't let our failure be final. There's times we're going to fail. King David, we're going to look a little bit more. I, I resisted from going all through his life because next year I'm going to do a little series. I've already got it all planned out and David's a big part of it. But um, David had this time in his life. Before he was anointed, the time he became king, there was a 20-year gap there. What did he do in that time? Well, first he started working with Saul, and he played him some music on the harp to soothe him. And then he went out, and, and, and he was one of his Mishmatha warriors, which in Hebrew is this, this, the lead of the warriors. And, and And he, you know, killed Philistines and led raids and did all kinds of amazing things. But then the king got jealous of David's military success. People started singing, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. They were singing this. And guess what? The leader got jealous. And he started throwing spears at David. And so David had to run. And it would have looked like any to anybody else it would have looked like the dream is dead. It would have looked like the dream is gone, and I could not fulfill what God has called me to do because he had to run for his life. And he served time in a couple different caves, and he ran away, and sometimes he was a shepherd, uh, back to his humble profession before, just just to make ends meet, just to live. And so it would have looked like he was a failure. So many times in our lives we go through difficult and hard times, But it's how we manage these times, it's how we manage these perceived failures that really count. And as a church, we're going to go through times where we're going to go, well, that flopped or that didn't work. So how do we do this? Although David considered, um, although what David went through may be considered a failure by some. It eventually ended up in him uniting the North and South Kingdom of Israel and being one of the greatest kings Israel has ever seen. So, how do we do this? One, we need to strive for excellence in everything. I think us here in this church, we need to strive for excellence in everything. All that we do, we do unto the Lord. We cannot let our failure be final. This was the uh, very life of David, by the way. He did everything excellent. There's this great documentary called Euro Dreams of Sushi. Has anybody ever seen that documentary? It's on Netflix. A couple of you seen it. It's about the best sushi maker in the world. And this guy seems like the worst guy in the world to work for, you know, because he is, like, very demanding. But there's this great story in, in there where one of his workers is making an egg loaf. I don't even know such a thing existed but he's making an egg loaf and he works for four months straight, making four a day to make this egg loaf, each one being rejected by the master sushi chef, Yuro. The master chef one day tried his egg sushi that he had made hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. And all he said is, this is the way sushi should be made. And he walked away. But that man cried the rest of the day because he strove for excellence so much. He obsessed about excellence. And I think this is just one of the things that solid churches and solid Christians do. It's okay to fail, but we strive for excellence in everything that we do. I think it needs to be a culture that we have in our church that everything we do is excellent because we put our best foot forward all the time. I want to... One of the things I do want to end with, though, is this. Just a side note. At the end of the day, don't give all of your excellence away at your work. Don't even give your best to the church if you have nothing left. Don't give all the excellence that you have away to the person you are mentoring and have nothing left when you come home. The one area, if this church is going to be strong, one of the things we recognize is the one area that needs to be strong is families as well. If the church is going to be strong, we need families to be strong as well. Give your excellence to your family and your church will be strong. Give your excellence to your family and your church will be strong. Absolutely give excellence to the church as well, but give it first to your family. That is your church in conclusion, I want to show the uh, basis diagram one more, thing, one more time. As we go around these bases, as we win character battles, as we win relationship battles, then it's going to be inevitable that we run up to those results. But see, dreams are birthed within us early on. And God wants to do something special and unique with you. And as these dreams are, are birthed within us, we have got to take the time to win character battles. I cannot overemphasize how important that is. We've got to win dependence on the Lord. We've got to be the kind of people that say, God, I've been trying to do this all myself, now it's yours. We've got to be those kinds of people. We've got to win our relationship battles. Because if we go just straight after our dreams, straight after the results we want, so many times we neglect our character and we end up hurting relationships. So we've got to take the time. It's a slower way of life to do this. It takes more time, but we've got to take the time to do it. I really believe that God wants to use each one of you for something great. And like I said, I'm just blown away that a skate park guy is standing up here, one, wearing a tie, but two, preaching. I mean, come on, that's ridiculous. I was a skate park guy. What am I doing up here? God puts dreams in your hearts for a reason. God does amazing things, and we've got to live into it. Maybe some of you today, you know this call that God has had on your life, or you have this dream, you know God has put this dream on your heart, and, and, and you know you need to step into it, but you don't know what that looks like. Or maybe you've been struggling with serving for a while, and you know, man, I know I need to serve, but I just don't know what to do. Come talk to one of us. Maybe you need a consultation on your dreams. We'd help you figure that out. We think that God wants to do incredible things at this church, and I'm so excited in two weeks to to really showcase what those next steps are. But these results won't come unless you first win at dependence. So if you're here today, And maybe you've been flirting with this idea of being a Christian, or maybe you're one of these laissez-faire Christians, that you're like, I'm a Christian when it's convenient at church. That's the most convenient time to be a Christian. Maybe your spiritual life you kind of take flippantly. I want to invite you to be more serious about that. I want to invite you to read your Bible on a regular basis. I want to invite you to come to church on a regular basis. Because I think that as you grow spiritually, God will do amazing things in your life. So maybe there's some of you today, whether you've already accepted Jesus at one point in your life or not, but you need to say, yes, I need to be more dependent on the Lord right now. Your dreams rise and fall in your dependence with God. So I, as, as we close out, I want to invite the band to come forward. I'm simply going to pray, and, and I want to invite you to pray um, with me that, that the Lord would do something incredible in this area of dependence of your life. So would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, there are some of us here who've been flirting with the idea of being more dependent on you. Lord, there are some of us here who we treat our spiritual lives kind of flippantly, kind of in and out, and we just sort of do what we want to do. And God, we realize that that is our will being done, not your will being done. So, Lord, would you lead us to a place where we say, Lord, your will, not my will, be done. God, would you lead us to a place where we drop the old sling of complacency and pick up the sword of what you are doing in the life of this church and in our lives? God, would you help each one of us to change so that we can step into change and do some amazing things with it? God, would you bring to mind that one person that really needs to be here? Would you bring that person to mind? If anybody's here right now and they need to say, God, I just need to call you my Savior today and I need to live a life dependent on you, I just want to lead you through this prayer. Lord, I realize I can't do things on my own. Lord, I realize I need you Help me to be more dependent on you for my daily life, for my daily bread. Lord, so that your will would overtake mine. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Amen.